Hello and welcome to Birdcast, a podcast looking at Nigel Neal's Quatermass stories on TV, film and radio, with me, John Deere, and my friend Howard Ingham. This episode, we're joined by Nigel Neal's biographer Andy Murray for the first of a two-part look at the second BBC serial, Quatermass 2. On the way, we'll talk about what Neil's been up to since the Quatermass experiment, the threat of commercial television to the BBC, and just how late a casting was John Robinson due to the death of Reginald Tate. So, Andy, where did uh, Quatermass begin for you? For me, um, specifically Quatermass, I'd suspect I first saw the Hammer version of Quatermass and the Pit. I can't pinpoint it, but let's face it, it was on every other week. So I suspect that's where it came from. And certainly as an interest, as I think a lot of people you know, have had the same experience, it was... I'm, I'm sorry, Nigel, it was the Doctor Who thing. It was, you know, reading Doctor Who magazine and realising that this Nigel Neal and Quatermass was a big influence and then thinking, what, what is this? I need to explore this. So, yeah, I can certainly remember buying the, the Pit compilation VHS and seeing it as this, you know, kind of treasured object. So, yeah, that's that's kind of where, where I came from initially with it. I think we've seen a lot of people, Howard, that talk about uh, their first experience of Quatermass being the, the hammer, the hammer Quatermass in the pit. I just think that yeah. was, it was the yeah. only one that was being shown for. It was certainly, it was, it was certainly Mike yours as well, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, Quatermass in the pit was the first Quatermass that I saw. My dad, who was a big lover of archive horror and sci-fi TV, um, his his favourite TV show ever was Doomwatch. Wow. In fact. Um, and um, he, um, I knew about the story where Robert Powell's character cops it in the, on the pier with the bomb because my dad um, explained the plot to me at great length and great detail with dialogue and everything years <laughs> after the fact because wow, okay. um, it was his favourite single episode of television ever. Um, and it's one of the missing ones. Yeah. And it's one of the missing ones, although I didn't know that until long afterwards. Um, There's a reprise in the start of the second series which survives. There's a clip at the end of the... Of, of the... When I wrote, um, I wrote a short story, I wrote a short horror story about a haunted piece of archive television a few years ago. Right. And um, in, in the thing, I, one of the characters finds a whole cache of classic television and um, he finds that episode of Doomwatch. And the version of Doomwatch that I describe in it is the version my dad explains wow. to me. But anyway, so as a kid, my dad said, "Quite a mass in the pit is on TV tonight. We're going to tape it." And we watched, we watched it, and it, it was like his. He was like, "This is the greatest thing ever." Um, and, and did you agree? And so did it strike I, you? At the time, this is this is at the time where the BBC had been showing a whole season of Roger Corman Harem of. Vincent Price movies yeah. and things like that and as a result um, I was well in the zone of like 50s and 60s um, schlock like that and I, I you know I enjoyed it immensely really it was part of so I, I knew who Professor Quatermass was I knew about you know all that stuff and it I don't think it scared me it didn't scare me okay. and the, the Quatermass in the pit I think actually of, terrified me. Of the um, of the three BBC Quatermass serials and the Hammer films attached to them, yeah. I think the scariest is Quatermass Two. Okay, well that's lucky. Which, <laughs> which is lucky. That's, that's, link, that's why it? we're here. <laughs> but let's go in for a bit of context first. Andy, as you've written the 
ultimate book on, <laughs> on Nigel Neal. Um, <laughs> we're at what we start with September 1955. 1955. Yeah. So we've had the summer of '53 when we had quite a quite a mass yeah. experiment, uh, which was obviously a phenomenal success. What's Nigel Neal been doing in the meantime since then? Well, he's kind of, I mean, obviously that, that made his name and that was uh, certainly made his name as a writer of original television. Uh, and then he's done a couple of other ad- adaptations, did Wuthering Heights, obviously famously did the 1984, uh, again with Cartier, uh, and did The Creature, again with, with Cartier. Um, so he's kind of, you know, he's he, he certainly made his name as, a, as an original, as a writer of original television. But also this kind of ructions bit under the surface with his relationship with the BBC. I think by this point, did that stem from um, them selling the rights cheaply to the Quatermass American? That's Center, right? exactly right. Yeah, and I, I had that conversation with him many times. <laughs> Sometimes when we weren't starting off talking about it at all, when and, he would bring that up. Yeah, exactly. Right. I, and, and it's 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 fascinating, and it probably is very telling that even towards the end of his life. So this would be you know about two thousand and five six. He, he was still furious about that. And I think, yeah, absolutely, the kind of souring of his relationship with the BBC, because he was quite keen to get into television. You know, he kind of started off, uh, you know, he trained as, a, as an actor, wrote short stories and kind of had the possibility of a literary career. He'd been asked if he wanted to write a novel and, and didn't want to because, and I guess maybe this is the kind of actor thing coming on, coming into it, he liked the idea of telling a story that was about the human face and about, you know, not, not prose, that it was about, you know, it was people telling a story. Um, so, you know, in terms of his relationship um, with the BBC, he'd gone into television quite keen to do it. He'd kind of walked away from other things, made a beeline for television, saw this as kind of new and exciting thing to do. And then within a couple of years... He's, he's lost interest in it, or not lost interest, but it's been slightly, the, the way that he's working isn't as comfortable and, and rewarding as he wanted it to be. Because of how he feels devalued by the BBC? or Yeah, exactly. It's odd because, again, sort of in the, in the late years of his life, he was getting his agent to find out what the, the details of the deal had been when the rights were sold. His, his feeling, I think he'd been given a little bit of money, but he was still feeling basically that he'd been, you know, kind of uh, the BBC had done him over in, on this deal. And ultimately he said that actually the rights were sold very cheaply, which kind of makes you think that, okay, the BBC didn't have a lot of money to get you with this deal. Um, but to him, that was just a, a insult upon insult that, you know, this, that his, his, his creation. So he took it deeply personally. Yeah, very much so, yeah, as well. Yeah. Neil takes the, uh, the, cheap selling of uh, the rights to the Quetus experiment to, to Harold personally. But do you think it was a slight, or is that just in 1953, the BBC's clearly in the infancy of rights negotiations with film companies for, for its almost non-existent TV? At the, at the, at I'm sure that's the case. And, yeah. and I think and that, that kind of raises all kind of questions about who Neil was, I think, because I think there is a kind of very one-dimensional view of Neil. He, he was a grumpy soul. I think he was much more, obviously, he was, he's much more complicated than that. I think he was actually quite a sensitive soul, as a lot of creative people are. Mm. But I think rather than him, um, you know, kind of taking things badly and going off and sulking, he was somebody who would go on the offensive. He was somebody who would bear a grudge. And, you know, he would react to things kind of, you know, with some anger. But he did react to them. It wasn't like they sold the rights and he's like, oh, I'm not that bothered. He cared about it. 
he cared about the fact that he created something and it was sold you know without his say so and uh, as he saw it cheaply but I mean given the way the BBC would go and you know it's uh, famously, Ray Cusick, who designed the Daleks, did not did not receive much in the way of, yeah. uh, as opposed to writer. But I suppose later on, writers were seen as free, were be, be, became freelance. Yeah. pretty much any like, unlike any other person involved in the production of BBC, yeah. who was a BBC, who was a who was a BBC employee. But here again, we're at the absolute infancy of that, and a lot of the case must be trial and error and making up as you as you, as you go along. They're encountering things they have they don't know yet. To, to come back to the end, so the, the, towards, you know, when I was speaking to him when I was writing the book, he had this real thing that having discovered the, the terms of that deal, he was going to speak to a journalist and they were going to get splashed over the front pages. He was saying, I really want someone at the BBC to wake up in the morning and get their paper and this is all over them. And Neil was not stupid. If he'd have thought, rationally, he would have thought, this is not front page news. And also, who at the BBC, you know, in 2006 was still he was there? Going, going, going to <laughs> but he was just that angry about it. He was still that kind of, you know, agitated about it. He, he saw it. He took it totally personally. And as you say, it wasn't. It was just how it worked. Um, and that was, you know, if you look at his career, that's the first instance of him creating something and he's not actually got hold of it. Um, but yeah, he took it he took it badly. <laughs> mm. um, so in terms of kind of coming to Quatermass 2, he's moved from being uh, as part of the script unit to being a staff writer and having a contract. And he told these stories about being sent contract after contract. He, had, he, he still remembered the name of the person in the, in the BBC's um, contract department. Uh, and he told stories about being sent slightly different contract after slightly different contract, never sending them back, never signing them. He just wanted it. You know, he, he wanted to retain the rights to his work. And he said, if you're not going to let me retain the rights, I'm not doing it. Um, so and did they put that into the contract eventually? Or yeah, they... yeah. So I think he, I think the contract was for three original pieces of work, uh, which I think was The Creature and Quatermass 2, maybe as two pieces of work, um, that he kind of, you know, he, he did retain that. But, you know, he was absolutely adamant that, that that had to be the case or he wasn't playing. The adaptation he did of 1984, again with, again with Cartier, uh, and starring Peter Cushing and uh, Andre Morel, that uh, became quite notorious, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And probably always would have been, obviously. You know, there's stuff in the book that, you know, it wasn't like, uh, you know, Neil made it notorious, and there was certainly a history of that adaptation of people trying to get it, trying to crack that nut. Uh, you know, the BBC trying to get that written. Uh, and Neil told this story about the fact that the BBC turned around after Quatermass experiment and said to Neil and Cartier, oh, you understand future things. So he did it. I think you'd be hard, <laughs> you'd be hard pressed to look at Quatermass experiment in 1994 and think, well, they're the guys for this job. <laughs> but that's obviously what was thought. And actually, they were right. They were guys for the job and did a fantastic uh, adaptation of it. Um, but yeah, um, caused an awful lot of uh, stink. And between the sort of original broadcast and the repeat broadcast, you know, uh, it looked like the, re the repeat produ uh, staging production wasn't the actual repeat. Um, yeah, because this was live, so if you wanted to repeat, you had to literally do it again. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and there was there was a thought that it wouldn't happen. That basically this was too much for audiences, and you know. Um, and, and, and it is, and I think it's, um, I interviewed Dick Fiddy for the book, and I think Dick Fiddy makes the point, uh, BFI, it is a new thing. Television at this point is still relatively new. People are getting used to the idea. And generally stuff on television is quite light and fluffy. Obviously there's drama and stuff. But the idea that you've got this 
horrible story. You've got, you know, somebody being tortured with rats in the corner of your living room, screaming. That's a new thing. That's not what people have been used to. You might go and see something pleasant in the cinema. That's different. But that's, but that's a, to be that, in your home. Yeah. That's a different thing. So you can kind of see why it had such an impact. Obviously, it was meant to have such an impact. That's what it was designed to do. Um, but they're all kind of stories of, uh, you know... Didn't someone die? Apparently, yeah, yeah. Like, obviously, people do die while watching television. Yeah. So statistically, that might happen. Um, but yeah, that the, 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 there was a, an awful kind of outcry at that. Uh, and uh, eventually, I think it was uh, the, the word came through that the new queen had watched it and quite liked it. Um, so I think in the end, this tipped the plans. The BBC thought, well, if the queen we likes like it, it we, it's, it's, we're probably on safe ground. Um, it's, inter- it's interesting what the queen likes watching on TV. <laughs> Apparently, she enjoys Corrie and and quite like David Tennant and Doctor Who. Ah, okay. So, you know, it's it's. Did you have any comment on Matt Smith, who would later play her husband? <laughs> she didn't see that. Uh, no, I have no clue, but yeah, <laughs> it, it's just it's just interesting that the queen the queen always has a much more interesting view of TV than many of her fans. I think. <laughs> yes, yeah, I suppose that's. Um, but then I, the sort of audience, the the audience that viewed telly in 1955 was like doing so with. Or fifty-three for the for, for question spend was doing so with you know with Hobson's choice you know it was it was if you had a TV you you watched you 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 you, you watched whatever was on so there was more yeah. of a case of um, okay entertain me here and such you know this, that's why you know what would now be considered you know a, a cult BBC Four BBC Two at the most program was you know mainstream mainstream viewing because this was this was this was, yeah. this was this was original drama. He also did uh, the creature, yes. which Hammer later. Also, this that's an original, story, yes. isn't it? Yeah, 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 and yeah. Hammer later bought the rights to that. Yes, was there uh, was that an easier rights negotiation than? Um, I think by that point there was just kind of uh, because Neil had the contract and because well, I presume for, because the BBC had that connection with Hammer. I think the story is that the Hammer bought the rights to Quake Mass Two, having just read the scripts. So it was well, obviously because the the, the film. Well, actually, the film hadn't come out at that point. Um, but yeah, I think it was just kind of, it, it was on Hammer's radar, really. Uh, and yeah, Neil didn't seem to have such a, a, a bee in his bonnet about that one. Um, and it's a very interesting film. Um, a really interesting play. To, as, as Cart kind of is part of his, uh, mm. his development as a writer. His comments on humanity. And yeah. That will become a, a regular theme. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in, in, his, in his work. But I think in a way you can probably look at 1984. There's a whole question here about how Neil really liked, really cherished originality above anything else. I think he, he cherished individ, uh, originality in his own work. Uh, you know, he didn't like to think that he was just, he certainly didn't like to think that he was just a genre writer, that he was just part of a field that was writing things similar to other people. He thought he was doing something original, which he was, um, which is why it's so uh, so influential, I think. Um, but he, he really cherished that, and I think he hated it in other things. <laughs> it's the same it's the same impulse, isn't it? That, you know, in years later years, when Doctor Who's merrily ripping off uh, Quatermass, he hated that. He just couldn't see why you would do that. It was very important to him to write something that, that wasn't just a regurgitated version of something somebody else would do. But it's interesting to look at 1984 and to see that, in a way, I think it slightly gets under his skin 
obviously it wasn't something he was particularly eager to do. It was something that was, that was kind of presented to him. But I think you can certainly see Quatermass 2 as in some ways closer to 1984 than it is to Quatermass Experiment in tone, you know, um, some of the ideas about, you know, um, about respect for authority or lack of respect for authority and, and what the government will do to you and that kind of paranoid tone isn't really there in the Quatermass experiment so much, but it's there in 1984 and it's there in Quatermass too. One thing that's clear from when you watch Quatermass 2, and obviously we've only seen the first two, I'm assuming you've only seen the first two episodes of the Quatermass experiment. Yes, no, I've, I've not got them upstairs, no, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Um, is uh, there's notably more money spent on it, not least of which there's a hell of a lot more pre-filming yeah. um, um, done. Was that always going to be the case that they were always, the BBC were always going to just give a larger budget to this, or was that Cartier going? If you want me to do this, we're going. To yeah, do no, I think it was seen as a as a sort of prestige production. I think it's actually in his contract that one of the new, um, you, you know, as a, a staff writer, one of the things that he would write would be another Quatermass. Uh, and it was always the idea that they would go out on location much more, and even just um, the broad. You know, it's, it's shown September. It's kind of you know that 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 kind of new season mm. uh, period, rather than the Quatermass experiment that was pretty much just filling a gap in the middle of the summer when nobody was expected to be watching. It was always seen as a prestigious thing, uh, and it was always uh, the idea that it had more money spent on it, and that they would go out on location and make it more of a, a sort of fuller, fuller, proper production. Yeah. Was the debut of uh, the ITV network forefront in their minds? Yeah, I think again, uh, you know, that the the, the arches, obviously, the, the famous story about Grace Arches' uh, death by fire, uh, which was seen as a sort of salvo against ITV launch. And I think Quatermass was seen as again part of that. It's like, well, how do we? What can we do? That's going to uh, sort of rock ITV back on their heels. Let's bring Quatermass back, which again tells you an awful lot about the impact that it had. That you that the BBC would think at the time, well, this is what we'll do because this is what's going to get people watching. Um, yeah, so it, it was definitely kind of seen that way. Was there always the plan to telerecord these episodes? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, I mean, because they were they scheduled in a repeat for each. Yeah, well. yeah. I, well, I, I mean, I, I guess partly because I mean, Quite Mass Two goes out. It's something like a month after the. F- the release of uh, the Quatermass Mass Experiment film. Right. So obviously by that point, it's it's beyond being just a show that people remember from a couple of years ago. It's quite a big deal. It's going to get an international audience. So it would make absolutely sense that they would telerecord it because there would be interest in this, and they could sell it abroad and and, and so on. Did they sell it abroad in the end? Don't honestly. No. Okay. <laughs> so before we come on to talk about the episodes themselves, the obvious change would be the actor playing Quatermass. Yes. Now, when I recorded with Toby Haydock and we talked about the Quatermass experiment, um, we touch on obviously mm. t- touch on other things as we go on as well, and he tells me it's a bit of a myth that um, John Robinson was a um, literal last minute replacement. Mm. Um, wh- when did was Robinson cast? You know, um, I think I've got the details somewhere. You know, I'm sure I've got an actual date. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't. It wasn't like you know the day before or anything like that. Making Robinson's performance all the more uh, enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> he's not that bad. No, he isn't. He isn't. He isn't that bad. It's just he's a bit. He's a bit po faced. Just... You, you know, I mean, he, he's the third best of the BBC ones, but. The least good. And, and uh, Kia is, is po-faced, but has a sort of, sort of 
gruff character about him. This is, there's there's something cold and unlucky, and not like I mean, Don Levy's playing playing a particular role. He's nasty. Robertson isn't, isn't nasty. Contracted on Wednesday, the seventh of September. So Tate dies twenty third of August. It's a good couple of weeks. Uh, and then uh, so about a month. That is quite last minute. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not you know the night before, but it's not not obviously wasn't the plan. Yeah. And it goes out from twenty second of October, so it's you know it's a, it's a, yeah it's fairly last minute. Yeah. Take obviously. Do you know what Robertson was uh, was best known for when he was when he was cast? Because I'm guessing. He, th- sorry, there, there, there isn't a huge amount of, sort of backlog of telly to be known for. No, so no, no. Film or film it, well, exactly. Yeah, I, I think he was. Well, no one might be pushing it. I think he was recognised as a bit part actor. Right. I think he was one of those. What's he been in? Kind of figures, rather than hey, it's John Robinson. Um, and you know, Neil did tell the story that when Tate died, they looked around somebody else, and basically, uh, you know, people weren't available. Because <laughs> um, you've got to be available, you've got to be ready for for the next yeah. six weeks, you know, six weeks of rehearsals. Which obviously begs the question: which sort of actors were available? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and and I, I you know, I, I don't think he's that bad. Really, I don't think he's the most memorable. Um, and there were certainly stories about him struggling with the lines and the sort of terminology and the lines and so on. But he's he's not terrible, really. Um, but the way the way Neil told it, if Tate had lived, he'd have just he'd would have been quite quite some ass. He'd have you sort of stayed with the role for for as long as uh, as as he would have it. You know, it certainly wasn't the idea. Again, interesting to look at it in the light of being a Doctor Who fan, and you think, well, this kind of cre- lays the path for regeneration in a way. This idea that the same character is played by somebody else. It's not not like it's never been done before, but um, it, that kind of interchangeability. Um, it is something that you can imagine sort of seeping in. It is. I just wonder about, does, what does that say about Quatermass as a character as opposed to as a, <coughs> um, sorry. a, sorry, a cipher? Or a, yeah. Sorry. Can you hear now? As a cipher for a plot. But anyway, we can, we, can, we can probably look at that. Yeah, as, I as think as that's as interesting. As 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 we go on. So episode, it's interesting yeah. that the only one who gets more than one go is Don Levy. And yeah. as far as I can think, well, and uh, that's Neil's. the only person who gets to play Quatermass more than once. Apart from uh, Keir. Keir does the radio one as well. But, All right, but okay. I'm not how much you count that as a as a performance as well. Yeah. And I think, well, on the screen, yeah, let's yeah, say. Screen, yeah. And I think technically, was he the only Quatermass left alive? Probably at that point, actually. Not sure when Andre Mayall died, but he, he was probably the last surviving Quatermass by the point they made. Great of us memoirs, I suppose so. Yes. Um, so it's. Yeah, Neil no, no, Mills was still alive. Oh, that's true. Mills, yeah, he might have cost a few bob though. So. Mills probably would have, <laughs> would, have, would have cost more than more than that. And, and Andrew Kier, that's as well. So, episode one, the bolts. Uh, unlike um, the Quatermass experiment, where we have all our speeches and titles, mm. we have very di- very definitive article and now yeah. as a. Why is it called the bolts? The bolts from bolts from the blue. Oh, okay. I right. presume. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Is that what? Okay. Fair enough as well. Like yeah. spearhead from space, which we'll probably mention a few, <laughs> a few, a few times. I was under the. I've not heard of that. No. <laughs> really. There is a lot. Yeah, a lot of similarity there, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. And an awful lot. So we start off 
as we did before with the the same type of the same type of title sequence, uh, the same although a different recording of uh, of Mars by Holst, but immediately we're into something very different. Whereas the original story I know had stock footage of the of the V two rocket, followed by um, a very lengthy scene of, uh, of 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 live video recording. Here we have an extended location sequence, yeah, um, and it's obvious. A bit more money is being the money is money is being spent as we're we we open at where I mean, it's a, it's a, like a mobile tracking station yeah. uh, for the army um, and a sergeant and a private have a conversation about meteors mm. landing. Um, we find we cut to a farmer or a rural type who discovers um, a meteor has landed nearby and goes to investigate it. We cut back to a captain being told of the situation, him taking it very seriously and, and, go, and, and going to investigate. It's it's essentially the same opening as John Pertwee's Doctor Who. Yes, it? it yeah. is. Yes. yes. Um, I'm, <laughs> this isn't the, first, the, 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 only, the only story we'll mention. This is the only time we'll mention uh, only series of podcasts how much 70s or Doctor Who um, owes to Quatermass. It's unfortunate that, that we probably we all watched Spearhead from Space long before we watched, we watched Quatermass. Exactly. Yeah. And then go... Oh no, as well. But nevertheless, um, just trying to view it um, as you would have done when you when 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 you first saw it, it's it infinitely feels a great. Uh, yeah, you know, there's been a great progression from from, from the first serial yeah. in terms of technical ability, in terms of atmosphere. Oh, it's it's almost showing off, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and particularly, look, we're outside. Look, it, it's daytime. Yeah, yeah, and as, and as, again, if you sort of see it as kind of part of the battle against ATV, there is a sense of ta-da yeah. about it all. Uh, and yeah, it's, uh, well, obviously it was, you know, very effective on many people, not least to Robert Holmes. <laughs> but, you know, it's stuck in, stuck in the memory. It's a, it's a great way to start, isn't it? And unlike the Clayton's Experiment, again, we start with guest characters. We start with a, we start with a, a situation. Yeah. And then we have uh, Captain, Captain Dylan, um, who goes with his sergeant to, to investigate. And you find that there's a line about, I think, he says, oh, the meteor does it, does it, it landed intact or yeah. something like that so that's that's rare something's weird and then it's um, the connection to to crater mass is um it's uh, captain dylan's girlfriend's dad yes um, it's a small world it is it is yes yeah. so that's <laughs> the, the, that won't be the, that won't be the oddest coincidence uh, we'll, 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 we'll cover, cover in that um, but uh, the sergeant's heard of him, the, the Rocket Man, yeah. as well. And there won't really be any references directly to the previous no. serial, will there? Presumably no. because you don't want to alienate necessarily viewers. I think they, they were conscious of that, and they were, they were, you know, they did state that outright. They didn't. They wanted this to be a, a, a separate story. But, all, uh, but already with with good world building, I like they're trying to establish to the viewer that this these meteor uh, showers have been happening and that stuff happened last year. There is in dialogue as well, but there's also the um, the private who makes grumbling um, utterances to his captain and then gets told off, told off by the sergeant. Just report that plane when it shows up. Nothing else. Got it? Yes, sergeant. It's the one I learnt yesterday, sergeant. TC, calling control room. You've got that Neil touch of like yes. slightly misanthropic, grumpy, <laughs> not trusting authority, which will be for it. So we cut to um, the rocket group. It's not called the experimental rocket group anymore. No, it's just the British rocket group. Just, just the British rocket group. 
when he's working on his Quatermass 2. Yeah, that's lucky. It's just handy. Um, <laughs> but there's two Quatermass 2s. One he's working on here in the UK and one in Australia that's just blown up. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that, politically, that's quite interesting because obviously... What were we doing in Australia at roughly that time, scientifically speaking? Were we testing we nuclear material? Testing nuclear bombs on the Maralinga plane and then sending soldiers in without um, radiation suits to find out what would happen to them without telling them and things like that. Yeah. And without telling the indigenous people either. No. Um, and so it's kind of, you've got this, he is, he is detonating a nuclear bomb in a place where we're detonating nuclear bombs. Yeah. By accident, but with horrible. Um, obviously, does, does somebody die or something? Is it's quite it's quite enough. The crew is killed, isn't it? Yeah, the crew is killed. It's quite a shocking thing, and you know, it's, it's essentially he's in deep trouble yeah. for this, isn't he? He's sort of. I mean, well, yeah, yeah, yes, he is. But given that his previous mission nearly caused uh, um, the Earth to be the taken, extinction of life as we know it, yeah. yeah, you've got to worry about where uh, where the government's funding the British, <laughs> the British for experimental rocket group. Like, there's, I mean, I suppose we could take this. It, it seems now that you can go, oh, this is ridiculous. How much money would you pour into this? But this is a top secret project. <laughs> you don't know, um, you know. Orford Ness was and the Porton Down. What, what, how yeah. much money was poured into whatever projects we don't know about, and how many people died from that as well? It's you know, there's yeah, there's there's the, the, there's the, there's the, there's the great skill of being able to say this is you know this is hush hush unknown stuff in there that gives you you know a fair amount of free reign I suppose within the within the narrative. There's a story as well that when when Neil was considering writing his prequel, Quatermass in the Third Reich, mm-hmm. whatever yeah. he wants to call it, um, the idea would be that Quatermass would be would have been um, sort of working on experimental rockets, and his wife, who was part of the team, had died, and oh. so he kind of goes off to sort of thirties Berlin in, in sort of you know in, in, in deep grief. So again, there's this idea that it keeps going horribly wrong. And I so, so sorry, a, a backstory that would have happened had had Neil written the prequel was yes. that. Quatermass was working on a rocket for the Nazis. Uh, no, that he was no. working on a, a, a rocket over here. Ah, right. Uh, it exploded, killed his wife, and basically he sort of thought, well, "What am I going to do now? Who else is involved in rockets? Oh, I'll go over and have a chat to von Braun." And it kind of springs off from that. Basically, it would have been the Berlin of the, the Olympics. But of course, then discovers horrendous, horrendous, um, uncanny things behind the Third Reich. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably, yeah, it was all about the ideas behind the Third Reich that you know the interest they had in the occult and the kind of uh, yeah, he did that. that. Actually, sounds like something that I'm really sad didn't get made. Yeah, he was quite keen to and sort of took it to the BBC. Inter- his relationship to Quatermass is always very interesting. This idea that he's quite, he's not, you know, um, he's not very pushy with it. He could have written more than four Quatermass stories in his life. But then towards, you know, in later years, he, oh, I could do a prequel. He's, he's, he's kind of, you know, protective of it, but dismissive of it at the same time kind of thing. He, you know, he could have pushed it a lot more than he did. He could certainly have, you know, dined out on Quatermass far more than he did, but he kind of chose not to, really. Do you think at various points in his life, then, he will have uh, wanted to distance himself and say, I am more than just the creator of Quatermass, and at the end he will come back to, well... At least I'm, I'm, I'm best known as the creator of Quatermass. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah. He really disliked the idea of being sort of boxed in. He really disliked the idea. He, he was a big... He read science fiction, he liked science fiction, and obviously there's a science fiction element in what he does. 
but he wasn't he wouldn't have been mad keen on being a science fiction writer that implies you don't write other things that implies you work in that box and certainly um you wouldn't have liked the idea of being called a horror writer you know he reacted quite badly to the idea of being called a horror writer and, but i think to most people you look at his work and you say well there are certainly elements of those two things he's certainly kind of doing his own kind of fusion of those two things and adding more 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 things to it the setup we see at the at the rocket group with Quatermass, his number two, who's a doctor, who's also a doctor, and um, a female assistant is the same <laughs> as the, as the first. But the characters the characters have changed. Like yeah. We have we have Doctor Leo Pugh, who's played by uh, Hugh Griffith, yes. who would later win an Oscar, wouldn't he, for Ben for Ben Hur, and his daughter, um, Mont Paula Quatermass, yes. played by Monica Gray, who who wouldn't. <laughs> no, wouldn't and possibly couldn't. <sighs> no. <laughs> is there any point in him being? Because when his daughter is is obviously it's a, it's a way into the story, but it doesn't have to be the only way into Quatermass and, and and the wider story. And I don't get any sense throughout this story of him being a daughter, as no. opposed to Karoon's um, Caroon, uh, uh, as a senior member of his team. Now his daughter is an assistant and. Yeah, see, well, I mean, this opens up the whole question of kind of the, the character of Quatermass and the way that that story is told. Uh, and I think to a degree, you have to view it, obviously, in the times that it was made. He was telling, if you were telling a story, I was thinking the other day about um, the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock. And the first episode of that starts with John Watson flashing back to his experience during the war. And then you cut to him sort of waking up in a cold sweat. And then you cut to him, you know, talking to his therapist. So straight away, before anything sort of Sherlocky has happened, you're establishing all oh, this guy's troubles, and he's, here's his backstory. Obviously, we don't know how long Neil had in mind that his wife, that Quatermass's wife, had been killed. You know, and that's how his, his career started off. But you don't get any of that. <laughs> that's not mentioned. And backstory, he just doesn't deal in it. But then that whole sort of backstory thing and character arcs, he's quite a modern thing really it's not I don't think it's a failing of his I just think that's how you told stories um but yeah it's it's very strange nowadays if you if you introduced a main character and his daughter you think oh well she's gonna get that yeah there's, <laughs> there's, uh, this is gonna go and then you get to Quaid Pass in the pit no mention <laughs> and you just wouldn't tell a story like that you wouldn't have the lead character in a, a sort of string of serials told like that we learn and again this kind of comes back to the sort of slight blankness of the character of Quatermass we learn very very little about him there's more about him in that novelization of the, the John Mills Quatermass than there is in any of the series but we also learn the daughter's now dead yeah 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 um and even you know in here as you say he's introduced by a character saying oh you know Quatermass the rocket man that's it there is no here is Quatermass here it's like you remember this guy off you go he's not set up there is not a kind of not continuity he's just like he's that guy and off we go there were stories that uh, Monica Gray, who plays Paula, learnt some of John Robinson's lines to help, to help him out, and that did, did that I, happen? I believe so. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And maybe that that shows. I'm not sure. <laughs> I wouldn't like to say. But anyway, he bring uh, Dylan brings uh, the fragments that he's found of the of of, of, of the meteor, and Quatermass, who's got nothing better to do, immediately drops everything and says, "Well, let's, let's, let's go and investigate." How long will it take us to drive there? Going fast, a couple of hours. Can you spare the time? I'm sorry, darling. We'll have to celebrate another time. Of course. I'd like to into this further. John! 
Be careful. Why did you say that? Don't know. Uh, Captain Dillon. Are you sure you've got all the fragments? Yes, I am. Why, Leo? In that case, it's hollow. He's a hands-on guy. Um, Save the world. Again. Again, yeah. Even though he doesn't know this at the time. <laughs> and his rocket's just blown up on the, other, on, the, on, on, the, on, the, on the other side of the world. Never mind. He can't, he can't send one of his staff. He'll, he'll personally go himself while um, Dr. Pugh investigates the, uh, yeah. the, 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 the meteor so he can have another, another, pl- another plot line going there as well. But they go and see the, um, the couple, well, the, the man who's found, who found, originally found this... The meteor and his wife. So you've got you've now got immediately another another lovelies of change from sort of high tech secret yeah. world to uh, a rural couple's house, and uh, there's clearly something wrong with the with, with 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 the man. Is there any way that I think you look at um, a piece of that, and then this is how we want to introduce like the threat because you don't see a mark. The mark is introduced later. Yeah. You don't see a mark on. As, as, as well but then you have like a, he, he has next to no dialogue because as you later know he's possessed yeah. by, the, by, by this point and all the running's taken all the feeling is coming from 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 from, from the wife um, but I wonder is this a the way this is structured because he doesn't learn anything Dylan doesn't learn anything as we come back but um, is this as much we're creating a scene to move people around within a live broadcast oh, quite possibly. possibly or are they trying to then like Something bad will happen just because just by noticing there's clearly something something's wrong with this individual. I think it's both. Of that. I think yeah. obviously there is the sort of practicalities of, of, of sort of uh, getting the actors getting something to do and moving around. But I think also it's a real slow drip, isn't it? It's it's this idea, like you say, that there's a sense there's something. Quite in the pit does something very similar actually. It's not until about I think it's towards the end of the second episode. Where you start to get that idea of oh well, there are ghosts around here, and it it, it does very slowly. It, it creates an atmosphere, as you say, something's wrong, something's going to go more wrong. Um, but he really sort of drip feeds the information about it. I wonder though that because if you're introducing this in to say like something's changed about the farm, we haven't seen a huge amount of the farm before he was, yeah. take, he was taking <laughs> over. Like, it wasn't like he was being jolly, uh, yeah. And then there's something there as well, so. But I suppose, in as much as we're seeing something different, because Quatermass now has something new to occupy him. To oh, good a mystery! I don't yeah. have to worry about my career or the <laughs> lives of people as well. So, um, as a as a good shortcut for any trying to find of local gossip or what happened in the area, they go to the pub. Yeah, uh, and they meet. Sorry, didn't take long. No, no, didn't take long. Well, it's it's a, it, yeah, it's, it, all human life is here. So the, the, the rural center for center for information, and the local man that we meet, played by uh, Herbert Lomas, isn't it? The um, the local who is the one who, on the one hand, and this, this is really good writing because on the one hand he just info dumps all the Winton Flat yeah. stuff and so has quite there, and that's quite a massive of reason to go and, and, and advance the plot. But um, he has lovely bits about where he met his wife and like yeah. how he doesn't how he doesn't trust the government. So, yeah, yeah. It, it it sets the tone and character. Uh, evening, Will. Usual things falling under the earth. What do you know about it? 
It's with the government. No, I don't think so, not this time. Uh, you think I'm just a silly old man, don't no, you? No, no, Robert, well, no, no. I'm not. They spoil and destroy. Who? The government, man. You tell him about Winnerton Flats. No. You tell me. Oh, the village. It was a village. Twelve, fifteen miles out on the sea. I remember going there fishing sometimes when I was a boy. I courted a girl from Winnerton Flats. Married her. The village? Hmm? The village? Oh, well, there was a government place there for research. Research into what? Uh, I don't know. Little place. Few sheds, but they seemed to content them. I did last year. And then... Go on. They run mad. Tore the whole village down. Tore it down? With them bulldozers. And, and they built a big place... With great iron round things on top. Well, again, I think that's a really interesting thing about Neil. Is I think most of people, when you, when you, most people, when they talk about Neil, you think he was an ideas man, and he was. His ideas were brilliant, uh, and you know, can still be kind of, uh, you know, revamped and used. And people don't tend to think that he was a, a character writer, a dialogue writer. But he was really good at it. Mm. Again, it's of its time, in as much as he's writing characters in a way that you wouldn't write them now necessarily um but he's very good as you say at kind of using characters in a story to um advance the plot but also it's more than just kind of functional you know these are the, these characters work well for for the, the purposes of the scenes they're in and he's, he's great at that and underrated at that i think i think when people sometimes come to rework neil's writing if sort of remakes and things like that, there is a temptation to say oh we'll keep the ideas and chuck everything else out to modernise it, but that undervalues how good he was at that stuff. The first and and I mean, his dialogue has this actual sort of like unforced poetry to it. You can sort of see the rhythms of it. It feels it's just really lovely. Even when he's like doing everyday cockney people being cockney and stuff, there's still this real sort of sense that there's something special going on. Yeah, it's kind of great like that. I also wonder if it if it foreshadows and stuff as well because there's a sort of sadness about about the guy the the the, the local then is it Robert um, that the, the, they meet there's, there's something there's something not right yeah. I think about that as well even though it's the local pub and that'll contrast as I think in episode four when we go to the workers prefab pub yeah as a, not this local pub as well but the the structure is not the same just yes the structure is the same because it's a set, a set and it has to yeah. the same rules but it's um, it's the people that that, that that populate it, and there's like the man. There's there's an old man. There's sad. It's meant to be a warm, comforting pub, but yeah, there's something. something there's something's right. wrong. Yeah. Uh, and whether or not that's meant to be conscious about what the effect the effects of the story, it it makes the viewer uneasy, which is clearly what they. Well, they, they talked about that, a lot, and, and I think there, there was this kind of documentation when when uh, Neil and Cartier were talking about Quatermass Two. They were saying. It's all about atmosphere. Atmosphere is absolutely key to this. More than it is in, in the Quatermass Experiment. The Quatermass Experiment, you know, is has got a sort of good rattling plot. And it's certainly very, obviously, 
<laughs> maybe somebody listening has seen the original but I haven't um, all of it um, but you know it, it's not about atmosphere quite so much but this does have that sense of absolute dread and Quentin Austin Pitt does as well um, and it's not always about what's actually happening it's just about the way you are being made to feel the way you know through through uh, what Neil's writing and how he Cartier shoots it it's just that dread so they go to take a look at uh, the nearby village of um, Wyndham Flats uh, and on the way another meteor falls and they, they stop and get out. Is it at that point that, he's, that Quatermass sees the complex or is that, does that come later? I think so, yes, that sounds right. But surely it's just a refinery. I hope so. What else could it be? I think I'm going mad. Let's try and get closer. Was that? That's my basic. Oh, because there's the bit we haven't covered is the reason that they're making the rocket is that Crater Mass is wanting to build a base on the moon. Yeah. For, for habitation, and, um, they're, and they're building a Stanley 55. The world is our oyster, and as we've already seen, uh, the UK is at the forefront of space exploration, <laughs> unlike in reality. Um, but this is, but this, this is science fiction, um, and he's developing a way, also, as well as ways of physically getting to the moon and living on the moon, uh, sustaining people by, by um, is it food, yes, as well, and. On the way to Winnemem Flats, a, a meteor drops, and he sees pretty much what he's designed for the moon being used. It's being used somewhere in the Engli- in the in the in the English countryside, yeah. which is disconcerting. Um, whether that comes across in the same way or not, they uh, I think they they have to sell it like well as like you know a mass conspiracy is, is starting to take place. Yes, it's very so very it's very 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 quickly. But they go to see where the uh, the meteor fell, they see areas uh, are um, fenced off, so we know immediately that they're trespassing. They find the meteor, uh, and then for the for the first cliffhanger, it's not the clearest, is it? But <laughs> they bend, is it Captain Dylan bends over uh, the meteor, something, it breaks open, or is it this, there's some gas that's going as yeah. well, and then uh, Robinson has to There's say, something on your face. There's something on your face. And, um, <laughs> yeah, but... Um, the guy playing Dylan, uh, John Stone yeah. as, um, doesn't react until I think it's um, John Robinson says there's yeah, something yeah, on your slightly. face and it's like it's a bit it's, it's a bit funky. it's a bit delayed and then Robinson has to do that hold the pose yeah. while, the, <laughs> while the credits roll because this is live and yeah. we can't cut away nevertheless we're told it's slightly clunky but then you, it's, it's hard to be harsh when it's, when it's live yeah oh well it's, it's, it's achievement well. yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, absolutely um, so that you've um there's something in the meteor, yeah. or the meteorites that have that have, that have, that have landed, and we have uh, our first cliffhanger and the end of part one. We'll conclude our look at the rest of the episodes of Quatermass Two next time. Our thanks to Andy, and if you've not read his book Into the Unknown: The Fantastic Life of Nigel Neal, you really should. And while I'm in a plugging mood. Our editor Emma is running 12 marathons this year to raise money for CALM, a charity for the prevention of male suicide. So if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please consider making a contribution, however small. 
just visit bit.ly forward slash coops for calm. That's C O O P S dash the number four dash calm. Thanks also to Steve Horry and Andrea Kinnear. You can follow Bergcast on Twitter at Bergcast Calling, find us on Facebook, or our website is bergcast.room207press.com. Bergcast is presented by John Deere and Howard Ingham and is edited by Emma Cooper. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.